So thank you again for everybody for being here, for coming out, listening to this talk. I'm really excited to share this information. So this is stuff that I'm very, very passionate about. I love, hopefully it comes across in this, in this talk. So the topic of today, as Roshi mentioned, is the mind-body connection, so integration, coming together with the interconnectedness of our, of our theme um, going through Arango right now. So to kind of give you a little bit of background on why I'm speaking about this, where, um, where this is all coming from. So I am a physical therapist and a strength and conditioning coach. Um, Ro Rochiano sent out an email with some of my background info. So if you are interested, you can take a look. I won't go through all of that right now. But just so you get a little bit of perspective on where I am coming from, uh, my practice is not a typical kind of traditional practice where we see a lot of patients, all different things. Um, I particularly focus on very specific aspects. So half of my practice is towards certain populations of sports, uh, performance, and I'll talk about that in a moment. And then the other half is on chronic pain. So those that have been suffering for very many years, have seen many um, therapists, providers, physicians in the past without any relief. And there's a reason why those two are my focus. So I'll kind of just go through that. And by sharing that, you'll get an idea of um, how all of this kind of fits together. So with my sports kind of sports performance and physical therapy aspect of my practice, I focus on three main kind of categories, and that's strength sports, um, gymnastics, and martial arts, combat sports. Okay. Now the reason why it's those three in particular is actually because of the significance of the mind-body connection in those three pieces. So with gymnastics, if anybody's ever actually watched gymnastics or has been into gymnastics, the things that they do out there is incredible. Things that are honestly, to some extent, almost superhuman. Um, once I started going through physical therapy school, learning what the body can do and what is normal, and then realizing what gymnasts do, it was amazing. I knew I needed to go into that. But the thing with gymnastics is that there is such an enormous fear component. So there is so much, um, stress, fear, and all that that goes into it. And so my passion has been, how do we allow them to have this peak physical ability, physical performance, even though all of this fear is going on? And you'll, you'll see through this, through this talk, through this discussion, about how much fear influences the physical body or stress influences the physical body and physical body influences stress, all right? And then same thing goes with, um, with martial arts and various combat sports. So there is a, for anybody that, you know, I know there's quite a group of you in here that are very intimately involved with various martial arts, right? And so the, we know that there is a very large um, stress and fear component in that. You are, it is essentially one or many on one. Um, and you have to be able to not only physically perform, but also think clear enough to do what needs to be done in those situations. So bring that all kind of together, those, those are my passions for the sports, particularly because you have to have such a strong ability to work both with the mind and the body and how they come together. 
So then the other half, like I mentioned, is chronic pain that I work with. And chronic pain, um, you know, we all hear that term, but there's a lot more to it than just pain that lasts for a long time. So for those that experience pain that's lasting longer than three to six months, there is a very large percentage of them, of people, who actually begin to have true structural and neurochemical changes within their brain and their nervous system. So as we kind of have that pain going on for a long time, that doesn't, that doesn't mean that there's anything like wrong or something's unusual about them. We all go through this. So if we, any of us have pain that lasts for a very long time, our nervous system actually begins to change. And there are changes within the brain as well. And so if you are not working on the mind as well as the body with chronic pain, then you're gonna be missing a large, um, large opportunity to help. So, so a lot of my kind of days, weeks are spent integrating mind and body together. And so in the past, it used to be kind of, um, well, at least in the, meta, the, the spiritual community has always known this. Everything I'm about to say, we, we have known this through the spiritual practices. But the more scientific and medical community has always kind of um, not really been open as much to the mind-body connection until more recently. So it always used to be this kind of woo-woo-y thing to the medical and scientific community. Right. But as of pretty recently, and I, when I say recently, I mean the last few decades, so not that recently, but fairly recently, that a lot of science has been coming out showing what the spiritual practices have been saying all along. Right. There's a lot of research now coming out speaking about the benefits and the actual measurable changes that happen with the practices. So a big part of my talk today will be sharing some of those pieces how what we do in our practice um, influences our body in a, in a scientific way as well. And then how can we use that skillfully to help, um, to help us work with some of these physical and emotional difficulties that we go through. So to understand this mind-body connection, the main thing that we need to start with, or the big thing we need to start with to understand everything else is understanding stress in the autonomic nervous system. If we understand stress in the autonomic nervous system, we will understand this mind-body connection. So for those that aren't familiar, we have a part of our nervous system called the autonomic nervous system. So to kind of break it down pretty, um, I'll try to do this as simply as I can. If anybody has questions, of course, ask. But we have two main divisions within our nervous system. The central nervous system, so that's our brain and our spinal cord, right? So that's our central nervous system. Everything outside of our central nervous system is our peripheral nervous system. So then our peripheral nervous system is split up into two other categories. And one of those two, so I won't confuse you with all the other stuff, but I'll just say one of those two is this autonomic nervous system. And if you listen to the name of it, autonomic nervous system, you'll notice that it sounds a lot like automatic, right? And that's the point, the root of it is the point. So the autonomic nervous system is what helps to control our automatic functions within our body. So think like your heart rate and your breathing and your organ function and how dilated your blood vessels are, your circulation, all that. So that's our autonomic nervous system. And the interesting thing about the autonomic nervous system 
is that it has these two categories within it called the sympathetic nervous system and the parasympathetic. Okay, so possibly many of you have heard of, this, of these terms. So the sympathetic nervous system is the fight, flight, or freeze part of our nervous system. We've heard that expression before. And the parasympathetic is the rest, digest, and recover. So I'll go through all that in a little bit more detail in a moment, but I just want to pause and point out that the kind of significance of this piece, that the, our nervous system that controls all of our automatic functions are divided into two pieces. One of those, the fight, flight, or freeze, is our stress response. So in other words, our stress has a direct influence over all the automatic processes within our body, right? And so there comes this mind-body connection piece. Right? So we'll go through the details now about how it all kind of goes together, and then I will talk about how this relates to our practice and how we can integrate a lot of these things skillfully into our practice. So the first thing to understand is that stress, you know, we, we often hear stress and we think stress is just emotional and anxiety. But stress is not just a mental piece. Stress, scientifically speaking, like how it's typically classified in the medical world, is really anything that brings us out of our comfort zone. And that could be emotional or physical. And that's a big piece to understand that this could be physical as well. So if we're talking about stress, some examples of you know, mental stress, what we're all familiar with, what we think about when we hear stress, things like nervousness, doubt, anxiety, depression, fear. But what we don't always think about and realize is that equally we have physical stress. So things like um, very strenuous physical activity, even exercise is considered a stress. Okay? So anything that is bringing your physical body out of your comfort zone as well. The reason this is important is because the almost identical processes happen, whether it's physical stress or emotional stress. So the things that we're going to talk about, it doesn't really matter if you've had a very hard, um, you know, if you if you're, have a very hard physical, let's say, day, you're, you're, moving, you're moving furniture all around your house, a lot of the same processes will happen as if you were anxious about things. Right, so the physical and the emotional, they're both stress. And it's anything that brings it at you out of your comfort zone. Now the other piece, the other side of the nervous system, so that's sympathetic nervous system, the stress response. Sympathetic nervous system stress. So you think S and S. So then we have the other part of our nervous system, the parasympathetic, that's our rest, digest, and recover. So for the mental emotional piece of that, there have been, research looking at like what, um, what different emotional aspects and moods and feelings are often associated with the parasympathetic nervous system. And those are things that, like the, some of the things that have been found are gratitude, kindness, love, compassion, equanimity, and serenity. So if you actually look at a lot of those different things that have been shown through the research to promote a parasympathetic state, it's a lot of the things that we already practice. Right, those, you know, are if if you think about the, um, you know, the four, 
immeasurables, so to speak, right? We, we have the equanimity, the loving kindness, the compassion, and the sympathetic joy. So a lot of the practices that we develop through our practice helps to kind of shift us into that parasympathetic nervous system state, okay? So that's the mental piece. But then the physical piece are things like relaxation and sleep. So understanding that, what we're gonna do now is just go through what actually happens in these different states. Like when we're in the sympathetic nervous system state, what is actually going on? And when we kind of map this out, we're going to be able to see how this is all connected and it'll also give us hints on how we can work skillfully to switch between the sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous systems. All right, so we're gonna start with the sympathetic nervous system. So remember, this is the fight, flight, or freeze part of our nervous system. It's the stress response. So anytime we're under stress, physical or emotional, we go through the sympathetic nervous system response. So we have these neurotransmitters that, and hormones that, that are released. And the two primary ones are adrenaline and cortisol. So again, regardless of whether this is physical activity or emotional activity, we'll release adrenaline and cortisol. And so first, and it doesn't go in this order, but I just chunk this together like this, so it just makes more sense. So we'll talk about what those things do to our awareness and attention. So first, anytime we are in the stress response, we are going to be more vigilant. So our mind will be more vigilant, meaning that it's gonna be searching for and focusing on all possible threats and challenges. So this is an evolutionary um, thing that's developed in order to help keep us basically alive as a species. When we go into the sympathetic nervous system, our mind will go towards looking for all of the things that are wrong, that are bad, that could hurt us, right? And so I'm sure that we've all been in those situations where it becomes very stressful, all we could focus on are the negative, and then it seems like everything around us is going wrong. And then of course there will be other people who will say, well, don't you see that this isn't the way that it is? But it's, you know, as, as anybody that's actually gone through it, it's difficult to see that. And part of that is because our mind is hardwired to be able to go and look only for the threats to try to protect us in this stressful situation, okay? So then, in addition to that, our mind is constantly looking for just like what can go wrong, what can go wrong, our eyes will dilate and will become very focused. And so the idea, again, is that if we are in danger, we want to spot out everything going on, focus on what we need to focus on to get us out of danger. Our muscles are going to be activated, tense, and ready for action. And so again, it doesn't matter if you're, if you're sitting in a chair, if you're emotionally um, in a in a stressful situation, if you are going through the sympathetic response, your muscles will act as if you need to fight something, run away from something, or freeze, right? So that's why we get all of this tension in the sympathetic response. Now, in terms of, there is a difference between acute and chronic also, whether we are in acute stress or chronic stress. So are we experiencing stress just in a short period of time right now or has it been going on for a while? 
If it is a short-term stress, an acute stress, then actually our alertness, our focus, attention, and our energy goes up in those situations. It increases. And our pain sensitivity actually decreases in acute um, stress. So imagine, take a moment right now, imagine this. You're walking across the street and you trip, fall, twist your ankle. So now you're on the ground with a twisted ankle. Can you imagine if it's painful? Would you think that it's painful if you twist your ankle falling down? Right. So now a car, you see all of a sudden a car, a bus is coming right at you. Is that ankle painful? No. Not anymore. Not anymore. Exactly. It is not the thing needed for survival. That pain is gone. Right? So in those stressful situations, it will, you will knock out the pain in order to get out of whatever situation you need to get out of. So you'll have a decrease in pain and acute stress. But if you're under chronic stress, all of that gets reversed. So if you're under stress for long periods of time without the ability to recover, then your alertness, focus, attention, energy, and social connection all decreases. So just to kind of emphasize the social connection piece, there have been numerous theories and approaches kind of looking at how our ability to communicate and socialize and be open with others is very, very dependent on whether we are in a sympathetic or parasympathetic nervous system state. The more we are in a sympathetic nervous system state, it is very hard for us to be able to connect with others. And so a lot of these practices, again, that we, that we in our tradition do practice, helps us shift out of the sympathetic state and into the parasympathetic state where we can experience things like love, gratitude, stuff like that. But I'm sure that we've all been in situations where under tons of stress and it is very difficult to find something you're grateful for, right? And it is very difficult sometimes to express love and emotion towards others when we're going through extreme amounts of stress. And this is why it's hardwired into us again with the sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system. And so with the chronic stress, you also had increases in muscle sensitivity, or I'm sorry, pain sensitivity, so you're going to be more sensitive to pain, increase in tension, muscle soreness, anxiety, fear, depression, and isolation. So because we don't have that connection, we're going to have much more feelings of isolation. And whether we've experienced it ourselves or have known others that have gone through this, I'm sure that we've all noticed that those that are going through very, very difficult times will slowly try, will slowly not try to, but they just naturally will start to fade away from others. They're gonna start to kind of back out and not be as, um, as social and connected as we would all like to be. All right, so that is the awareness and attention piece. Now we shift a little bit more into the body as well. So the sympathetic nervous system directly relates to our circulation, our circulatory system. So our heart, our lungs, our blood vessels, all of that. So when we are in the sympathetic fight, flight, freeze response, we're going to have increased heart rate I'm sorry, increased breathing rate and decreased depth of breathing. So in other words, we're gonna be breathing faster and it's gonna be much more shallow and shallow up here, right? So it's gonna be much more of this like high breathing here. 
in terms of our heart and blood vessels, our heart rate will go up and our blood pressure will go up. So part of this, again, to, it, it's helpful to understand why all of this is happening. In these stressful situations, our body unconsciously, our body mind are unconsciously deciding, <clears throat> excuse me, what do we need for survival right now? And it's going to bring blood to those places and decrease blood out of the other places. Okay? So when we're in this parasympathetic nervous system state, everything is kind of balanced out and just circulating through. But in sympathetic nervous system state, we're just going to shuttle most of the blood to certain areas and away from others. So that is why we end up getting this increased blood pressure. Right? So the blood vessels end up constricting to decrease blood flow going to certain areas, and then it's going to increase blood flow to others. So typically, in stressful situations, our body is trying to protect our core and our brain, and it's bringing all the blood flow inward but it's going to constrict the things in our arms and our legs, so our blood vessels in our arms and legs. That's why you measure blood pressure, you end up having increased blood pressure because the diameter of the blood vessels decrease to decrease the blood flow going to our limbs. It's also theorized that that's a protective mechanism for if you're under threat, usually the things that would have gotten either hurt or if an animal is chasing you bitten or whatnot would have been your arms or your legs first. And so it's trying to decrease blood flow to those areas so you don't lose blood in case you do get something wrong with your appendage. All right. So then an interesting thing too with our circulatory system, our blood sugar will go up. So in times of stress, we end up having increased blood sugar, regardless of whether you are diabetic or not. And so that has a lot to do with cortisol so I mentioned before, adrenaline and cortisol gets released. So cortisol gets a bad rap for a number of things. It's not all negative, and it is trying to help you in, in, I mean, in all situations, trying to help you. So one of the things that cortisol does is it triggers your liver to release sugar into your bloodstream. And it's doing that to give us energy. So we're in a fight-flight response, and now it's triggering sugar to go into our bloodstream so that we can use it for energy to fight or to run away. And so useless, very, very helpful in an acute stressful situation. But for those under chronic stress, it can influence how we, um, it can influence our blood sugar levels and our ability to manage our blood sugar. And so it won't necessarily, you know, there's nothing that says that it's necessarily going to cause diabetes. But for those that may be diabetic, it will make it much more difficult to manage their condition. If anybody's also taken um, steroids like prednisone, cortisone, things like that, those are derivatives, chemical derivatives of cortisol. And so for anybody that takes it, you also in those times, very many people will say that they have a difficult time with blood sugar because it does the same thing, it puts more sugar into your blood. So it's, it's much more difficult for those with diabetes to you know, be on those medications. All right, so then we move on to body temperature. So you're going to have decreased regulation of your body temperature. Certain parts will be warmer, certain parts will be colder. Usually your limbs will be colder. So if anybody's, again, been under a stressful situation, hands get very, very cold. 
right? Your feet might get cold. And it has to do with the, with the blood circulation as well. So like I said, less blood flow to the arms and to the hands. Right. And so overall, with the circulatory system, there's going to be imbalanced circulation, which is going to decrease nutrient delivery and healing. So if you do have, and you, anybody you know, has any kind of health condition and you're trying to recover from it, the ability to recover has a lot to do with how well we are circulating things. Our, our nutrition, our white blood cells, and all the important things to help us recover, go through our circulation. And if we have impaired circulation, it can impact the way that we're able to recover. And so stress, whether it's physical or emotional, can decrease your ability to recover in general from any kind of, whether it's a physical or emotional um, difficulty or illness. So then we move on to the digestive system. So I'm sure that many of us have experienced the um, discomfort that we've had in our belly during times of stress. Some will eat more during stress, some will eat less during stressful situations, but stress does directly influence our digestive system. So like I mentioned, the blood flow goes to places that are needed for survival, and it goes away from places that aren't needed for direct survival in that moment. Digestion is not needed for direct survival. In a, in a stressful situation. And so we actually get less blood flow going to our digestive system during stressful times. And so our digestive system isn't working as well when we are under stress. So even if, let's say, you have the best diet in the world and everything is, you know, you're on top of it with everything, just the simple fact that you're going through stress and you're in the sympathetic nervous system state will impact how well you're able to digest that food and absorb that food. So you may be eating the best stuff, but you're not actually getting all the nutrients because of this shift towards that sympathetic nervous system state. Okay. So then we move on to the immune system. So this is another interesting one that really points out um, how stress is very different depending on whether you have acute stress or chronic stress. So if it's a short-term stress and you have acute stress, the interesting thing is our immune system actually goes up. We have improved immune function in short-term stress, and we have decreased inflammation. And there are a number of things that kind of are released to decrease inflammation. One of those are cortisol. So like I mentioned, cortisol is not all bad, right? So it gives us energy with the blood sugar in short-term stress, and it also decreases our inflammation. So it's very, very useful. The issue comes in if you're under chronic stress. It's chronic stress that increases inflammation and decreases our immune function. So with the sympathetic state, overall, you have an increased likelihood of chronic inflammation and or delayed tissue healing if you're under that chronic stress. All right, and then finally, just an understanding of tissue structure just like what tissue is and like what our body's physically made of. So the sympathetic nervous system state is a, what we call a catabolic state. So you may have heard the terms anabolic before in sports, bodybuilding, things like that, right? Anabolic steroids, things that allow your muscles to get bigger. Anabolic means to build, catabolic means to break down. So 
the sympathetic nervous system state is a catabolic state. The fight, flight, or freeze requires additional energy in order to successfully overcome a stressor. And the only way we can do that is to break down certain tissues and to create energy out of that. So we've talked about how the liver ends up bringing out sugar into our blood. Um, we end up using fat, we end up burning off proteins, we end up using the things that our tissues are made of in order to gain energy. And so our tissues actually somewhat break down during this sympathetic state. And it's doing that, again, for our benefit, to give us the energy. But if we are doing that in a chronic capacity, if you're, if you're constantly in a sympathetic state, our body not only will have a hard time recovering, but it, will, it can potentially gradually break down. So there's a lot, as I just mentioned, with what the sympathetic nervous system does. The parasympathetic nervous system, the rest, digest, and recover, I won't go through all of the details because it is quite, you know, to go through each one of those again, but for the most part, it basically will be a more balanced or positive state. All those things that kind of went out of balance will come back more into balance in the parasympathetic nervous system state. So one thing with the parasympathetic I do want to point out again is that it's often called the rest, digest, and recover state. So it promotes sleep. And so for anybody that is having difficulty with sleeping, the more that you can promote a parasympathetic nervous system state, the better it will allow you to be in a state that can help you sleep. And with sleep, there are a lot of, there's a lot of important aspects of why you know, sleep is beneficial. But one of the things to realize is that sleep is the, t is the prime time for our body to recover and to build. So we have four different stages of sleep, and I won't go into too many details right now with all of that. But stage three and stage four are particularly important. Stage three is deep sleep, stage four is REM sleep. So rapid eye movement sleep, that's when we dream. So those are the deeper levels of sleep that you'll get into if you're actually able to, to um, go deeper in your sleep and be in the more parasympathetic state. So stage three is the prime time when our physical body recovers. So that is the time where our body is releasing all the things it needs to release in order to help build everything. Stage four, REM sleep or dream sleep, that's when our mind actually recovers. So that is when our memories get consolidated. That's when we can bring short-term memories into long-term memories. That's when we actually process emotional things. And so, Realizing that stage three, stage four, physical recovery and mental recovery happen in the deeper levels of sleep. And we, so we want to get into those states, but those states are really, um, they require you to be able to shift into that parasympathetic nervous system. And then of course, you know, rest and digest, like I mentioned, the more into the parasympathetic nervous system state we're in, the better able we the better we are able to absorb our nutrition, get the most out of it, digest well. All right, so I know I went through a lot there. Um, I just wanna open up for really quick, just so we don't move on too fast. 
Is, do, does anybody have any questions on how all of that works? So anything at all? Yes. Hi. Um, Hi. Can you can you all hear me? Yes. Yeah. Oh, thank you so much. Is it is it Gendai? Yes. Gendai? Okay. <laughs> so interesting. Um, I wanted to ask. It sounds it sounds really easy to categorize. Mm-hmm. Um, by putting like the parasympathetic nervous system response is good and the sympathetic nervous response is bad. Is it um as simple as that? I mean, no. You kind of talked about the physical the physical stresses and the emotional stresses as well. But could it be, you know, like for our muscles to grow, for our bodies to grow, we, we need to put it through some stress and we want to get out of our comfort zone sometimes. So could the sympathetic nervous system response at times be a positive thing? Yes, that awesome question. It was something that I was going to get to, but I love that you bring it up already so we can get right into it. Is there, okay, we're good, okay. So you're 100% right. The stress response is not all bad and we actually need the sympathetic nervous system response to grow, to develop, to evolve. So part of the, some of the things that I spoke about and kind of alluded that acute stressful responses, oftentimes they're extremely helpful, right? We actually boost our immune system. They give us energy, right? They, they can decrease pain when we need to. They can increase our focus. So stress in and of itself is not bad. We do not want to think of stress as a negative. It often is referred to as a negative thing. But that's a key, key point that I'm, I'm glad you brought up, and it was, a part, it was something that I was going to bring up later on, but it's great that we're talking about it now, that it's important we don't think like, oh no, I'm stressed, this is bad. Stress itself is extremely, extremely helpful. All those things that I mentioned are there on purpose to help us overcome the challenge. And it's only through challenge that we grow. If we had no challenges, if we had nothing that brought us out of our comfort zone, we, not only would we not have a full life, but we wouldn't have a long life. So, kind of a, just a really quick interesting thing. We, we know that when we are upright and we are standing, we have natural curves to our spine, right? Our, our spine is in this nice curve. I think it's not just completely straight or bent over. When we are born, we are actually born with a C-curve. So we don't have all those natural curves. And we can't stand up because we're stuck in this, that kind of curve. But what happens as we develop is that we end up rolling on our belly, moving our head, doing all of these things that stress the spine and make it so that it needs to change its shape to allow us to stand up. So even from the youngest age, if we had no stress, if we just laid there and did nothing to bring us out of our comfort zone, we wouldn't even develop into the ability to stand and walk. Right? So everything we do depends on stress. We want stress. Now, the issue is chronic stress. Where things get negative and where we hear about all the bad things about stress and how stress is bad, it's not that stress is bad, it's that chronic, uncontrolled stress becomes a negative. That's what we're trying to work with and to help us shift out of. So the overall goal is to have this wave where we go through a stressful response and then we recover. And when we recover, we recover stronger. 
And then we go through another stressful response and then we recover. And that is healthy, that is good, that is how we live our lives. But if all we do is just go up and stress, up and stress, up and stress, and we never recover, that's when our body begins to get exhausted and burn out. So does that, does that answer your question a little bit? Yeah, of course. Of course. That's a very good question. And yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. question. Um, so during chronic stress, yes. um, does, do the muscle tissues change in any way? Like do they, I'm not saying atrophy, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. but I mean do they destructure or do they, are they not as strong? So yes, it depends on the type of stress. So if if it's physical stress, then yes, and for other reasons, not just for the stress level, but if you're constantly overusing muscles, they can begin to break down. Right. But even, let's say, emotional stress, cortisol, actually decreases the strength of a lot of our tissues, including our ligaments and our tendons. Oh. So even with cortisone injections, if anybody heard of like taking prednisone, taking cortisone for inflammation, they don't want to, well, like, they as in physicians don't want to give a lot of injections, don't want to do it frequently, because if they constantly inject that, the actual structure of your ligaments, tendons, bones will weaken. And so we, they stay away from that medication. And yes, our cortisol release might not be as significant as actually putting drugs into our system, but still, over time, if we are constantly releasing cortisol, then yes, it has the potential of decreasing the strength of our tissues. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, good question. Any other questions about any of that? You said that physical yeah. exercise. No, no, please go <laughs> ahead. Yeah, 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 I love it. You said that physical exercise was a stress as yes. well, yes. right? Yes. So how how is it also does does it at all engage the parasympathetic mm -hmm. at the same time? Yes. So it doesn't engage. So it it depends on what you consider exercise too. That's definitely. A piece, but if you are work doing it at a point where your heart rate is actually going up, yeah. you're in a sympathetic response. Your heart rate is going up, your adrenaline is coming out. That's what's telling your heart rate to go up. So you are in a sympathetic response if you are, um, if your heart rate is rising. So remember that it's acute versus chronic. That's the issue. Stress, acute stress, or acute exercise, like heavy exercise bout, is good. It, Increases the stress, release all things, and then you recover from that, right? So the parasympathetic part comes after the, the workout, okay. right? And so on that note, though, so a lot of things that I do with my athletes or with my clients is I train them in ways to get into their parasympathetic nervous system right after their session. So they'll, they'll finish training and right away start doing breathing techniques, right? Start doing things. So you shift out of the sympathetic response as quickly as possible to get into the parasympathetic so you can start in recovery as soon as possible. And the cool thing is, when you learn to do it like that in training, you translate that into life. So you'll go through a stressful situation and you learn right away, like, all right, overcome the stress, recover. Overcome the stress, recover. And you can use the breathing techniques and other things that we'll talk about today to help shift you out of the sympathetic response. So, so yeah, so the parasympathetic is after the training session. Yeah. So there's nothing wrong with doing what you're doing, but also do it after, or if you don't have time, then do it after. Do it after. 
Yes. <laughs> but doing it before is nothing wrong with that. That's good. Yeah. Just you'll get a lot of benefit doing it after. Recover. Yeah, yeah. It really does help with recovery. It's, it's interesting that um, understanding this again, mind-body connection, a lot of the physical, um, like sports performance stuff that's out there, you know, at the highest levels, pro teams, multi-million dollar um, organizations now are spending so much of their energy towards these recovery practices. So they're bringing in all these different, whether it's breath work or other relaxation, meditation, things like that, to help shift out of that sympathetic nervous system state after their training. And there's a lot of tools that, you know, I don't want to go too much down the rabbit hole, so I want to make sure that we get to everything I want to talk about. But there are actual tools, if anybody's interested, let me know, that you can measure your balance between your sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system. It's called heart rate variability. And it actually looks at um, where you are kind of in your sympathetic, parasympathetic nervous system. And a lot of these high-level teams now have all of their athletes tracking the heart rate variability to know if they're more sympathetic, parasympathetic. If they're more sympathetic, so in the stress response, they're going to alter their training to decrease the stress of their training and then focus more on the recovery pieces. So this sympathetic-parasympathetic balance has a lot to do with training as well. But it all translates into emotional stress as well. That's the cool part, that it works both ways. And a lot of the... Um, you know, psychotherapy, well, it's not really psychotherapy approaches, but a lot of the approaches for mental health these days are now using more and more physical pieces too. So as sports and physical um, training is using a lot more of the mental aspects, a lot more of the, um, the interventions for mental health is now using more physical aspects. And that brings us to that integration. We can't have one without the other. If we only work on mental health with mental um, interventions and physical health with physical interventions, we're going to miss the boat. So we want to make sure that we have both, regardless of what you're going through. Okay. Any questions? Other questions? Yeah, before? maybe you can say a few words about uh, state of being, state of mind. So for example, yeah. sense of inadequacy, right? Mm -hmm. In terms of stressors. Yeah. Inadequacy, uh, self-deprecating thoughts. Uh, being in a state of emotional or psychological unease. Yes. Okay. Good. What does that do? Yeah. How does that affect the body and other Good. Functions? So we will, yep. So there is a piece, I, I want to get to a few things, but there is a piece that I do have a little bit later. Is that okay? That we yeah. will directly touch on. That would be great. On, on all of that. Thank That'll you. Be good. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So now that we kind of went through all those, why this is significant to really understand, like why this matters in terms of knowing those nuances, is that the way our body works is that it's bi-directional. That means if we are in a sympathetic or parasympathetic nervous system state, those things that are mentioned will happen within our body. But if we then change certain things within our body, it can help trigger that state. So in other words, if they're, let's say you're in a sympathetic state, and you're breathing fast. And then you know, though, that slow breathing is more with a parasympathetic state. You can actually use slow breathing to shift you into the parasympathetic state. So you can use the physical pieces to move you into the state that you want to move into. So now we're going to talk about um, how we can use the three main pieces of our practice to do that. So we're going to discuss a little bit about body. We're going to discuss a little bit about uh, breath, and then we're going to discuss a little bit about mind.
and how we can use body, breath, and mind to be able to shift the way that we'd like to shift skillfully in those situations. All right, so we'll begin with body. So first, let's just for a moment imagine someone going through an incredibly difficult time. So just kind of visualize it to yourself. Somebody going through a really difficult time. So they're heartbroken, they're scared, they're feeling hopeless. Right, so take a moment, kind of picture what they would look like in front of you. Now think about how is their posture? What does their posture look like in those situations? How is their facial expression? And then how is their muscular tension? So try to imagine those things. What would that look like? And then take a moment to imagine someone who is very excited and grateful for their life and their circumstances. So quite the opposite situation. How is their posture? How is their facial expression? And how is their muscular tension? So take a moment to just kind of see the difference between what you would expect for those two situations. So keep that in mind as we kind of talk through the, these next pieces. So there's a few research um, studies that I'd like to just kind of briefly go over that I think will be very valuable for us to understand and will help us directly in our practice. So first, there's been quite a bit of research looking at the influence of posture on stress. Okay? So this experiment in particular aimed to investigate whether an upright seated posture could influence the affective and cardiovascular responses to a psychological stress task relative to a slumped posture. So they basically took a group, one group had a more upright straight posture, another group had a more slumped over poor posture, and then they put them through stressful situations to see how they responded. And they looked at affect, which is another word just meaning like moods, feelings, attitudes, and they looked at cardiovascular response which is a sign of that autonomic nervous system. Like, are we more sympathetic or parasympathetic? All right, so for the results, the upright participants reported higher self-esteem, more arousal, better mood, and lower fear compared to slumped participants during the stress-inducing tasks. Slumped participants used more negative emotion words, first-person singular pronouns, effective process words, sadness words, and less positive emotion words. So I want to point out, kind of emphasize a few key pieces here, that just in our practice alone, we've, we've known the importance of being able to have that upright posture. Right? Now the interesting thing is that in that slumped posture, I just want to point out one of the findings was increase in first-person singular pronouns. In other words, they were more likely to use the word I. So having an increase in that ego identification purely based on the postural aspect, I thought it was very, very interesting for our practice especially. Right? So working with that I, me, and the ego, that more slumped posture kind of fed into that in addition to all the other negative um, words that kind of go through our mind in those situations. 
So in the conclusion of the study, what the researchers concluded was that adopting an upright seated posture in the face of stress can maintain self-esteem, reduce negative mood, and increase positive mood compared to a slumped posture. Additionally, sitting with an upright posture reduces self-focus. Sitting upright may be a simple behavioral strategy to help build resilience to stress. And the research is consistent with embodied cognition theories that muscular and autonomic states influence emotional responding. So just by changing that, the physical body, it can affect the mind and the autonomic nervous system. So then they took similar um, approach and then they looked at how posture influences depression. So additional research has found that adopting an upright posture may increase positive affect, reduce fatigue, and decrease self-focus in people with mild to moderate depression. And it's been concluded that posture may interact with mechanisms involved in the maintenance of the depression, as well as with depression-related emotions. So I want to point out, too, that I, I'm not saying, or nor are these researchers saying, that curing anxiety and depression is as simple as just being upright. Like, of course, there's more to it than that. But what this is saying is that this does have an influence. This is part of the puzzle. Right, so just when working on these things, it is something that you'd just like to include in whatever else you are also, including all these other things that we're talking about, or if you're working with a mental health provider, what you are working on with them. But including this posture can make a very, very you know, big difference. So other research has looked at how not just physical posture, but facial posture or facial expression influences our state. So some research has shown that facial posture, like smiling versus frowning, may impact our state. But what's interesting is that they, they've also gone as far as to research this connection with Botox. So they've looked at how Botox might influence emotional states by putting Botox on frown lines. So specifically, on the, basically, they're, they're essentially paralyzing the muscles associated with frowning and trying to see whether or not there's an impact on your emotional state. So research has shown that treatment with Botox targeting frown lines, um, so with that, with that type of treatment, patients suffering from depression experience a quick, strong, and sustained improvement in the symptoms of depression. Research has concluded that the extreme bottoms-up approach, so bottoms is in physical to affect mental, so the extreme bottoms-up approach of paralyzing the facial muscles to influence the emotional brain may represent a paradigm shift in psychiatric disorders. And there's been quite a lot of research, and there's a big um, systematic review, and for those that aren't, don't know about research, that's when they take a lot of different research studies and put it all together to see what everybody's kind of agreeing or disagreeing about. And it really has shown that the, the Botox over the frown lines is a, like actually does significantly improve um, depressive symptoms, interestingly enough. <coughs> Excuse me. So the, the point of this is not to go say, go get Botox, right? <laughs> that is not what I'm trying to say. But through our practice, as we are sitting, as we're practicing zazen, as we are mindful of our bodies, 
take the time to pay attention to your faith, to take the time to pay attention to the tension that you hold in your faith, and work on being able to allow that just to relax, right? Don't force it to relax because that'll defeat the purpose, but if you allow it peacefully to relax, then that could also affect our state. And that goes whether or not we are sitting and practicing or with whether we are just going through life. And so other practical pieces are to use a smile also to potentially raise mood. So there is a, um, if anybody's seen it, there's a commercial out right now, and I forget what the company name is, but it is talking about mental health services. And they were kind of making a joke, basically saying that somebody is going through a hard time and their family member just says, you should smile more, and it's not helpful. Right, so it's, the point is that this will not cure depression, because nobody's saying that. It's not just, oh, just smile more and just put on a happy face and everything will be okay. But it does have a potential influence. Even if it's small, it's something to add on to everything else that we are talking about that can really add up at the end when you're using it well. Okay. All right, and then, really quick, They've also looked at how walking posture influences stress. So something to keep in mind both with our kin in practice as well as just walking in life. Right. So one study investigated the effects of an upright walking posture versus a slumped walking posture on psychological and physiological states when faced with psychological stressor. So the results were that the upright walking posture group showed significantly improved psychological states including less low arousal, negative affect, less sleepiness, less pain, and marginally greater feelings of power than the slumped walking posture group. And then physiologically, the upright walking posture group showed significantly lower systolic blood pressure, galvanic skin response, and marginally lower skin temperature than the slumped walking posture group. So the physiological piece is important because it shows that it has a direct influence over our autonomic nervous system. So blood pressure went down as part of our autonomic nervous system. Galvanic response is your sweat response. So that's basically what it's saying, that's changing the amount that you are sweating. And then of course temperature response as well, all autonomic functions. So basically the research has shown that just changing posture in walking influences that balance between your sympathetic and your parasympathetic nervous systems. All right, and then finally, we're just gonna talk a little bit about actual movement and physical activity. We've already kind of discussed a little bit about the importance of that physical activity and exercise. But movement, physical activity, and exercise improves circulation, which is the path to which nutrition and other important um, chemicals and cells are transported throughout our body. So it can help us to heal, to recover. And movement, physical activity, and exercise also helps with autonomic balance. So by being able to, again, trigger the sympathetic nervous system, but then recover, and then trigger the sympathetic, and then recover, it trains our body to be able to shift back and forth skillfully and well, and gives us a better ability to be able to handle stress. So physical activity and exercise have been shown to improve learning and memorization, focus and creativity, and also shown to control and diminish anxiety, depression, inflammation, and pain.
So we can see that the way that we use our physical body has a very significant influence over our physiological processes and our mind. And a lot of that has to do with this autonomic nervous system connection. Does anybody have any questions on any of those pieces with the body? Yes. Um, so this would seem to suggest interval training would be... So it, not, not necessarily, there is benefit to interval training, but interval training is higher, excuse me, higher stress training. So to understand the impact of interval training on the body, again, it goes back directly to everything we just talked about with stress. The harder the exercise, the higher the level of stress. The higher the level of stress, the more we need to recover. So you can't, like, Interval training has its place and there are a lot of health benefits, but you would have to do it at a lesser frequency than lower intensity, and you'd really have to prioritize recovery afterwards. So both moderate intensity and high intensity have their benefits. One is not better than the other. There's a lot of debate, but no, there's no direct agreement on that. Both will have their benefit, so it kind of depends on your physical ability in general and how much time you have and how well you're able to recover. But if you're going through a lot of emotional, let's say somebody's going through a lot of emotional stress, then high interval training during an emotionally stressful time will really increase stress levels a lot. And will need, then you'll need to really recover even more so. So I would just be thinking about and managing just total levels of stress, physical and emotional, and then working with that. Does that answer your question? Okay. Yeah, and the last thing you said was interesting, that it's almost, um, when you're able to do interval training, it can be um, very helpful. Mm -hmm. But it's not necessarily all the time that you'd be able exactly. to. Exactly, exactly. So with interval training, you may only do that two or three times a week, and that's, and that's for, you know, if everything else is healthy and going well. But if you have health conditions, if you have um, other stressors, it may be hard to even, like hard on the body, be able to do two or three times a week. So you wouldn't be able to do like a five day, six day a week high intensity interval training program. You may be able to get away with that for a little while, but it will catch up to you. Now, again, unless you are like a super high level athlete, professional athlete, like that's different. But if we're talking about even very fit but general population, it catches up to you. Yeah. Good. Any other questions? Yeah. No, I just uh, have a comment. Of course. Yeah. Um, I'm listening to you and. <laughs> well, I just went through a situation that it's just shining so much light on mm -hmm. what I experienced and it had to do with stress and it had to do with recovery and everything and I was like, oh my god, so now I understand what actually happened right. to my body because right. I, I, I thought I was having a, a stroke or a heart mm -hmm. attack because I went under a lot of stress for a lot of different uh, areas and I was holding on, like I couldn't release it, so yes. I was holding on to it for about four hours until after I finished my class with my students. Yeah. And then after I finished, my body just started like, exactly. you know, yes. reacting to it. And I thought, I'm like, am I having a stroke? Am I having mm -hmm. a heart attack, right? Yeah. So I went to the doctor because I'd never experienced that. And they checked my blood pressure, which normally runs on the low side. Now it's high blood pressure. Right. And I was like, what do you mean I have uh, high blood pressure? I always run on the low side and everything else. 
So I was trying to like understand, I was really concerned. And then I did go for a stress test. Uh -huh. And, and they, they did all that in my heart. And the doctor said, like, you're the healthiest person that's walking out of this place. And I, he's like, you took your stress test and you recovered very quickly. Mm -hmm. So I was, they made me walk up this thing and I'm like, okay, I got this, you know, this is fine. And I started breathing harder. And afterwards, I finished and I used my breathing Good. Yeah. to slow my, my heart rate, to use yeah. my breathing. And I recovered very quickly. And they, they get young, like, oh, you know, you recover very fast yeah. from your stress test. So when I went back to the doctor, the doctor said, you're fine. There's exactly. nothing wrong with you. And then I said, well, then why did I experience that? And he goes, were you under a lot of stress at that moment? And I go, oh, yes, yes I was. Exactly. Exactly. Yes, I was. So um, it's just everything just. Right. And that's, yeah. And I'm, I'm so, you know, I, I'm sorry that that happened, but I'm glad that you're sharing that with everybody. Yeah. And it's showing like that, that is why, like that was the biggest thing of why I wanted to share this information. I know that we all go through this. And the worst part about it is when we don't know what's going on. Like just the unknown of what is this? What does it mean? Is something else bad going on? Mm -hmm. When we understand this, we can work very, very skillfully with it. And a lot of our practice is we can use so like our practice helps us develop the skills to work with that. And if we understand what's going on, we can then skillfully choose different aspects to work on in those moments. So yeah, absolutely. In those really stressful, just on that really quick before we move on, on those really, really stressful situations, especially when you can't do something about it, like you had to be in a class, you couldn't really, you had to wait and hold out. Mm -hmm. So you're in a fight or flight. Your body is either trying to run or trying to fight something or potentially freeze. But remember, all your heart rate is going up, your, your muscle tension is going up. It wants to do something. And if you're not allowing, not allowing, like not able to allow it to get it out, it all builds up. And that's what you're feeling inside of it. That's what I felt. Right, exactly. Because as soon as, as soon as I hit the button, like end my class on mm -hmm. Zoom, the whole reaction happened. Exactly, exactly. But while I was controlling it, because mm -hmm. I, was, I wasn't about to take out my frustrations on my students. Right, right. And so I was controlling it, and then afterwards everything came out, and I was like, oh my God, this is awful. Right. You know? Yes. This is really bad. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. I know you want to move on. Can I share something? You can. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. You can, yeah. you can uh, yes, yes, tell me what happened, how yes. that worked. Yes. Yeah. All right. So for years I had panic attacks. Mm -hmm. I'm sharing it just, yeah. you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Um, so I had panic attacks every night mm -hmm. uh, for years. Yes. And it was really bad. Um, and I went, then I went to this therapist, just really quick. I went to this therapist who said, oh, you should read a book at, at night when this happens. Get up, yeah, read a book. Yeah. I was like, but I don't feel like reading a book. I right. feel like <laughs> Right. You know? Right, She yes. said, well, fine, then go run. Yeah. And three times I did this in a row when I had the panic attack. I went downstairs and I ran. Mm -hmm. And everything just went yeah. down yep. like that. And I, I haven't had a panic attack since those three times yes. when I did that. Yes. So what was happening? Yeah. Did I overload something or did I, did I give it a chance to recover? Like exercise? What happened? Right. So, the, yeah, they're, they're copies, but that's really interesting. They're, so, a couple of things. Mm -hmm. with, um, with things like panic attack and for some, and 
not necessarily you, but in general, for some, panic attacks are associated with potential traumas. If what one of the things that have been found with um, with trauma something like that, they often happen when you have this built up energy and you can't let it out. And so there are certain even techniques, physical techniques for trauma that actually involve just letting it out. You want to get it out. Mm-hmm. Um, and so those are more in intensive traumas, but even just under stress in general, the same idea, the ability to actually let out the energy that's built up will allow us to calm down. Your body is building up all the energy and it needs to let it out. Mm-hmm. And so being able to let it out will allow the body to be able to calm down. So oftentimes in those situations, yes, like the breathing and the parasympathetic stuff, it's useful and we're gonna talk about that in a moment, but sometimes it actually, you actually want to do more physical activity yeah. to get it out and then mm-hmm. go into those parasympathetic states. Right. Okay. So like I know for me, when I would go through um, different strict stressful things, if I was gonna do like a big talk somewhere or something else, I know I'd be like really, really ramped up, right? I know it's a different situation than what you shared, but still, it's, it's that just the stress response, very ramped up. When I would finish, I would feel very on edge and ramped for many hours after. And I realized right after, I just needed to get the energy out and then shift into the breathing. And then I was able to actually see it be able to calm down. Okay. So, yeah, so it, it is a very um, helpful approach to be able to do that, like the physical piece. Your body was just saying there was something, whatever was going on, I can't say what exactly triggered, I don't know, but something triggered your body wanting to release energy and keeping it built up inside of you was tough. And that's why you end up having the panic attack, but by letting it out, yeah, right. you'll be able to calm down. That's so, that's good, it is, it is cool, yeah. Oh, yeah. well, I'm just thinking that could be one reason why feeling very angry and enraged you blurt out something yes. that that even before you blurted out, or if you thought about it, would not be uh, what you would choose to say or mm-hmm. blurt out. Yes, yeah. So your body's trying just to get like it is again fight, flight, or freeze. It is trying to s- survive the moment in a sense, and just trying to get out what it needs to get out for essentially survival. Now I know that's not necessarily survival, but our body's acting like that. Right, right, right. right. Yes. And so it wants to just bring it out. Now again, I'm gonna to get to a point in a moment with the mind, and, and it's gonna answer Roshi's question too, that will also directly um, touch on what you just mentioned. Like why do we just blurt things out that quickly? You, you, and, and we can't like think fast enough to stop it. Right, so we're definitely gonna talk about that. Any other questions? about anything with the body. We good? Yes, okay. Oh, we do have a question? Oh yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Oh, I think you're muted. Oh, hold on. Uh, not coming through yet, hold on. Try again. Hi. Hi, yes, we can hear you. (laughs) Okay, great, thank you. Um, This talk is so cool so far, so just wanted to show my appreciation Thank you, thank you, appreciate Um, it. Yeah, Uh, this is a little different than what other people have been describing, but I'm just curious about if you have any thoughts about it. So Mm -hmm. 
Sometimes after Zazenkai, I'll find that I'm quite irritable and on edge, and I'm not sure if that's just being very tired, but I'm just curious about, I feel like a lot of people have been talking about situations where they have a lot of sympathetic activation, mm -hmm. and then, you know, experience extended stress afterwards, but I'm just curious about Zazenkai seems like it would be more of a parasympathetic activation, and I'm kind of curious about that side of things. I know Roshi sometimes says it's like the body, like toxins being released, but I'm just curious about your perspective. Yeah, no, that, that's interesting. So when you are during Zazenkai, are you able, do you, do you truly feel like you are able to be in that parasympathetic state? I know the practice is to shift us towards that, but are you actually is the question, right? Because right. we can be sitting there and practicing, but it doesn't necessarily mean that we are there and there might be a lot of agitation and things building up. And once we finish, right. the body's just like, I, I need to get it out. Like, that's just, that's it. Yeah. Like, I've been sitting all day and this stuff is building up and now I need to get it out. Right, so that could potentially, I can't say for sure that that's what it is for you, but that is a possibility. And that, that is a way that our body would work. Okay. That's interesting. Does that, make, does that make sense? Yeah. I think in the last, usually in like the last couple sessions of Zazenkai, I feel that kind of builds up more agitated, impatient feeling. Yeah. So exactly. I think that that's accurate. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Any other questions before I... We're gonna. We, I still want to hit breath and, yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Zazenkai seems to be a protected state, and then when you're out of the protected state, then the stress can. It could. So that that is another point. That that's also true. That in those moments while you're there, everything is much safer, calmer. But then when life hits you again, it might hit hard. So that is a very good point. That's a very good point. So that could, that could also be a piece of it. <coughs> yeah, it's good, good. All right, anything else? Hello, can you hear me? Oh, yes, yes, go ahead. So um, thank you again for this. I think, you know, uh, you should write a book about this. It's <laughs> thank you, I appreciate um, it. <laughs> combination of saying, you know, yeah. um, I totally would like. Um, <laughs> thank you. The question I have, the question I have it yeah. has to do with a couple of things actually. One is, um, uh, I noticed that, you know, I guess because I'm getting old, I don't know what it is, but um, I'm actually getting too much chill in situations where I need to concentrate or pay more attention. Mm. So th this will work the other way around where yes. you can kind of trigger your attention levels by kind of, I don't know, agitating yourself a little bit yes. in the breathing, doing kind of very shallow breathe or something like that. Uh, yes, I, awesome, I love that question. So yes, we are gonna, we're gonna talk about that in the breathing coming up like right now, after we finish this, this part, but okay. yes, the, there is, just as we can skillfully shift into parasympathetic, we can skillfully shift into sympathetic. And again, sympathetic is not bad, it's chronic stress that's not good, but sometimes we want to have more arousal, we want to have more energy, we, we want to do, right, in certain situations. And so there are approaches to actually increase that ability so that you can be more focused, you can be more in that, 
zone, so to speak, if you're feeling too tired. So this does lead perfectly into our breath um, conversation. So are we okay? Are you okay if we go right into the breathing and talk about that? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Perfect. All right. So we're going to shift now into, into the breathing. So med, like, I like to do the imagine for a second again, because I like to bring it up because a lot of these things that I talk about, if you, if we just pay attention to life, we already know it to be true. Right? Like I didn't need to necessarily say that a research study said that when we are more depressed, we're more slumped, and when we are more energetic, we're upright. Right? Like life has shown us that. But the research is nice to show that if that, you know, it's becoming more and more medically accepted. But it's just a matter of pay attention, being mindful. So with the breath, if we just pay attention to how the breathing works in general, right? Imagine somebody going through a panic attack, right? Take a moment, imagine somebody going through a panic attack. Imagine somebody hyperventilating, okay? Think about what they look like, how their breathing is. Now imagine somebody who just needed to do 20 maximal sprints, right? So as fast as they could, 20 times, as hard as they could, and they just finished their 20th um, sprint. Think about what their breathing is like. So if you kind of think about that, they are very, very, very similar. In both of those situations, you will be breathing fast, you will be breathing through your mouth, and your shoulders will be moving. It will be like a kind of thing, right? Like that movement. Our body is, is a built, triggered like that, that when we are in our sympathetic state, again, whether it's physical or emotional, that is the response. That is how we breathe in the high, stressful state. On the other hand, if we kind of imagine somebody completely relaxed, in bliss, feeling great, usually they're going to be much more relaxed. They're not going to have their mouth gaped open wide, trying to suck in air. They may have their mouth closed, nose just bringing air in and out, and their belly moving. So there are a couple key things I, I want to share today about how we can skillfully shift between sympathetic and parasympathetic by knowing these, these certain kind of windows or doorways into our autonomic nervous system. So first, whether we breathe through our mouth or through our nose influences the sympathetic-parasympathetic balance. The nose breathing is more so associated with parasympathetic, so rest, digest, and recover, while mouth breathing is more so associated with the sympathetic, fight or flight. Okay? Then the next piece is whether we breathe through our chest and shallow up here or deep into our belly. So deep into the belly is more so associated with the parasympathetic, while the chest is more so associated with the sympathetic. All right, so, so far, let's say we want to be getting into a parasympathetic state, for instance, which is the more common. Not always, though. There's definitely been, we want to get sympathetic sometimes. But if we're trying to go parasympathetic, mouth closed, tongue on the roof of the mouth, breathing through the nose, and bringing the air in deep into the belly. But if you wanted to increase the stress response, then actually breathing fast, expanding your chest and breathing through your mouth 
would do that. Now, I don't recommend going right into that though. There's ways that you can kind of mix things around and I'll tell you that in a moment. So then the next piece to think about is whether it's fast or slow. Fast breathing is more so associated with sympathetic nervous system, while the slow breathing is more so associated with the parasympathetic. And then finally, the fourth window is the inhale versus the exhale. So this is an interesting one and it works directly with our autonomic nervous system. So when we breathe in, our heart rate actually goes up. It is a more sympathetic response. And when we breathe out, our heart rate slows down. It's more parasympathetic response. This is normal. This is how we are all built. And that's why before I mentioned how you can measure whether you're more sympathetic or parasympathetic with something called heart rate variability. That's the So when they hook you up and that's when they're measuring heart rate variability, they're looking at this process. And so you actually want more variability. It's healthy to have variability. So let me just mention this really quick and then this will make more sense. Heart rate is a measure of how many beats per minute, right? Like 60 beats per minute, let's say. Heart rate variability is the amount of time between each heartbeat. So they're measuring the milliseconds between each heartbeat and how different they are beat to beat. So when we typically think like heart rate, 60 beats per minute, many of us would just think, oh, so that's one beat per second. But that's not necessarily true and that's not healthy, if that's the case. The healthy heart will be more like 0.8 seconds, 1.2 seconds, 0.7 seconds, 1.3 seconds, and it averages out to 60 beats per minute. But you want there to be a difference beat to beat. That's healthy. Because what happens is that when we breathe in, our heart rate should speed up. When we breathe out, our heart rate should slow down. And so with every breath we take, our heart rate should constantly be changing beat to beat. If we are very sympathetic and in a stress response mode, then we're not gonna get the parasympathetic nervous system slowing it down. So you will just have the increased heart rate on the breath in and then not enough of a decrease on the breath out. And so it becomes much more like a metronome, which is again, not healthy. So that's what heart rate variability is. Now with the breathing, we can use that to our advantage. If we understand this, if we want to go into a more parasympathetic state, we want to make our exhales longer than our inhales, okay? So we can make some like a four second inhale or six to eight second exhale. So that will help shift us into a parasympathetic nervous system state. On the other hand, if you do very big inhales or very fast exhales, you're going to ramp yourself up into a more sympathetic state. If anybody's familiar with, um, with different pranayama techniques, yogic breathing techniques, there's one technique, um, which is referred to as like bellows breath, where you're taking this big breath in and then, and then out quickly, and then in and out, and very, very fast, right? So that, you're bringing a lot of air quick, but then you're letting a lot of air out quick. And so you're, because your exhales are fast, then you're not able to, you're not spending as much time slowing your heart rate down, so you're getting yourself ramped up into a sympathetic state. So, the, so basically, the longer or bigger your inhales are and shorter your exhales are, the more sympathetic you're going to get. And then the opposite is true for parasympathetic. You can still do slow inhales, you don't need to make them short, but just make the exhales longer, okay? So 
kind of putting it all together, if you want to shift into a parasympathetic nervous system state, mouth closed, tongue on the roof of your mouth, breathe through the nose, breathe deep into the belly, and make your exhales a little bit longer than your inhales. If you do that, it'll be very effective. And there are a lot of different techniques out there. And the cool thing is when you hear all these techniques, because you know there's so many breathing techniques out there, when you understand how it all works, there's no necessarily magic to them and you don't need to think which technique is the best. There is no best technique. You just see what they're doing, right? Like if you're doing, let's say, e even breathing, like five seconds in, five seconds out, you know you're just balancing your nervous system. You're doing an even sympathetic, parasympathetic, and you're bringing your nervous system into balance. If you're doing something called box breathing, so inhale uh, five seconds, hold five seconds, exhale five seconds, hold ex um, five seconds. Still, that's bringing you into balance because everything is equal. If you're doing, let's say, four second inhale and seven or six, seven or eight second exhale, it's a parasympathetic technique. You're trying to relax. There is a, a very well-known technique in the medical world um, that's like four, seven, eight breathing. Like you, you breathe in for four seconds, hold for seven, breathe in for four seconds, hold for seven seconds, exhale for eight seconds. And so many people are like, oh, what, like, I need to do that technique and that technique is great. It's good, but it's just, if you understand how it all works, it's just like anything else. You're just exhaling longer than you're inhaling, so you will get a parasympathetic um, shift. And so your, your blood pressure is gonna go down and everything is going to calm down. But then if you do the, the very fast breathing, so if anybody's familiar with like Wim Hof breathing or some of these pranayamas that are much, much faster, then you're just increasing your sympathetic state because your exhales are shorter and you're doing big inhales. So when you understand how it all works, you can adapt to however you need to do it. And it really doesn't matter whether it's, you know, four seconds on the dot and seven seconds on the dot, eight seconds on a dot. It's just the relationships between inhale and, and exhale that matter and being able to breathe into your belly and through the nose, okay? All right, and then one last piece about breath before we finish off with mind that I just wanna point out because there's one thing that is often um, not fully understood and I think that I, I really would like to kind of share this piece and, and get the information out there. We've all heard that oxygen is good, we want to bring it in, and carbon dioxide, well that's the waste gas, we need to get it out, right? Like we've all heard that. That is only part of the story and that is only, it's not that that's not true, it's just not saying the whole thing. And if we know the whole thing, then we can use it a lot more skillfully. So it's true, we need oxygen, we need to bring oxygen into our lungs to bring it to our body, right? And it's true that carbon dioxide is a byproduct of oxygen, but it is not true that we don't want carbon dioxide or that carbon dioxide is bad. And this comes back to, you know, just an interesting piece with understanding the interconnected aspect of them, that, that this separation, really there's no good and bad between the two. So, there is an effect in breathing, and it's called the Bohr effect. That's the, that's the um, you know, scientific medical term for it. But the idea is that when we breathe in oxygen, we bring oxygen into our lungs, and that brings the oxygen to our blood, to our blood cells, to our red blood cells, our hemoglobin. So now the oxygen is in our blood cells, and it's getting transported. But that's where it stays at this point. And that's not the goal. We're not trying to get oxygen to the blood and just keep it there. 
we're trying to get the, the oxygen to our tissues throughout our body, right? Like we don't want to just keep it in the blood. The thing that triggers our oxygen to leave the blood cell and go into our body tissues is carbon dioxide. If we don't have enough carbon dioxide, oxygen will stay in your blood. You'll put one of those like pulse ox things on your finger, you'll have a really good number, but it doesn't mean you're actually oxygenating your body. It's just staying in your blood. Our goal is to get it out of the blood and into the body so it can, so it can give the nutrients it needs for our tissues. To do that, we need enough carbon dioxide. Carbon dioxide is our trigger to transfer it over. And so, many of, you know, many breathing techniques, many things are often like, get rid of the carbon dioxide, get rid of the carbon dioxide, but if you do that, you will not actually absorb the oxygen. And it actually increases you going into a sympathetic response. It's stressful for the body if you're not getting the oxygen that you need. A lot of these breathing techniques, like the big, the big breaths in, like Wim Hof and other techniques, you're gonna start getting very lightheaded. You're getting less blood flow to your brain. That's why you're getting lightheaded, right? So you're bringing in a lot of oxygen, great, but you're also letting out so much carbon dioxide that the oxygen isn't getting to your brain and to your tissues, and so you're going to get very lightheaded and things like that. Not necessarily that it's dangerous if you, if you don't overdo it. Like, it's not bad. Those techniques have their place and it's good. So I'm not saying it's bad. Just it's important to understand what they're doing. All right, so we want to build a tolerance to being able to handle carbon dioxide. Carbon dioxide is stressful. That's another key piece to understand. Carbon dioxide has been found to be a stress-inducing thing for many people. In a lot of research on, on like panic medication and things for panic attack, they actually test, they, they scientifically induce panic attacks by giving a huge um, inhale or bolus of carbon dioxide. So carbon dioxide is very stressful to the body if you're not used to it, but it's necessary to the body to be able to, um, to bring oxygen to where it needs to. So we have this catch-22. So the reason I'm saying this is that it's important that we train the ability to learn to be comfortable with carbon dioxide. And this is trainable. This has been around for many years. This is medically accepted that we train our ability to be comfortable with carbon dioxide and then our sensitivity to it decreases. And so then we can be very comfortable breathing slower and less. And by doing that, we're actually absorbing more oxygen. It sounds counterintuitive, but that's how our body works. To actually, we actually wanna breathe less, but slower, still the way that we talked about, through the nose, into the belly, but not such like forceful exhales. And we'll actually absorb more oxygen in that process into our tissues. And so, as we're breathing, we just want to, if you want to get to a point, sometimes when you're training it, where you're just a little bit uncomfortable, like you just want to breathe a little bit more, but then you learn, you train the mind to find comfort in that, to just be able to stay still, have equanimity in those states. And over time, that won't be difficult for you to handle anymore, and you're going to be able to handle more and more carbon dioxide. Okay? So this is a whole, you know, there's a whole approaches and there's a lot more to this. I just wanted to mention it quickly just to kind of dispel that we want to get rid of carbon dioxide. If we do, that's not going to be very helpful. We need both. Both are important. We need enough oxygen in and we need to hold enough carbon dioxide also to be able to get what we need out of the oxygen. Yes? So that's the point of the breath holding. 
yes. exercises. Yes. Yeah, so there are a lot of breath-holding exercises that when you breathe in and then you hold, or you breathe out and you hold, the point is you got air into your body and now you're holding the breath and as you're holding the breath, carbon dioxide is building up and it's transferring all that oxygen to your tissues. Right? So, so a lot of these techniques that would have the breath hold, it's there for that reason. Yeah, so very, very useful. Yeah. No, I was just gonna ask, um, you mentioned Wim Hof. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, so taking in so much oxygen, 30 breaths in a mm -hmm. row, in and out, in and out, in and out, but then he has you hold your breath yes. for, yeah. um, as long as you can. Yes. Right, is, is that part of it healthy? I mean, do you think mm -hmm. maybe part of the technique is, is the, breath is the right idea? And yeah. Yeah, so the, the technique, so the Wim Hof technique has, is probably one of the more studied, actually, um, breathing techniques and has been shown to have incredible benefits. So it's definitely, there's, it's not negative, but it's important to understand if we, if we know the Wim Hof technique, which is, for anybody that doesn't know, it's about 30 breaths, it doesn't need to be perfect, but it's about 30 breaths where you take a breath all the way in and then let it go. All the way in and then let it go. And basically at that speed, like fully in, let it go fully in, let it go, and over and over, 30 times, and then on the 30th time, you breathe all out and hold your breath, and then you hold your breath for a max amount, and then you inhale again, and then you hold your breath for a max amount, and then you do it again, and you cycle through it like that. There's a lot of research on it, and, and I'm, I know that we're kind of tight on time, so we don't have enough time, but I'm happy to you know, talk to people after about this. But the point about that breathing is that it is a sympathetic technique. It is a stress technique. You are inducing enormous amounts of stress. They've measured blood um, th through all of these. They've measured, took many samples, enormous amounts of adrenaline, cortisol, everything else. Like you are inducing stress. But you're inducing acute stress for a purpose. And like I mentioned before, acute stress improves immune function. So what they're saying is you, you can improve your immune response, it's anti-inflammatory. So it's like, so a lot of these techniques, they've shown that you can improve your immune response, decrease inflammation, and fight off of disease, certain diseases, like they, they've actually researched injecting E. coli, and they found that people doing this technique fought off E. coli, which was like unheard of before doing this technique. But they were able to actually do this breathing technique, inject E. coli, and fight off E. coli, and not have symptoms, because they were able to do this. But they were just inducing an enormous stress response, and and it's healthy in an acute, acute setting, right? So again, if anybody's interested in that, definitely let me know, we could talk about that later, but I just wanna to get to the last piece because we are getting short on time. So the last one I wanted to talk about was the mind, right? So I wanted to bring up this, um, this kind of key, key relationship with the mind. So we have three main segments. I mean, there are a lot of segments in the brain. I Keep that in mind. But with the brain, there are three ones that I want to talk about. There's the brainstem, there is the amygdala, and then there is the um, prefrontal cortex. Okay? So the brainstem, that's the part of our brain that's associated most with just survival, like being able to breathe and everything else just for immediate survival. The amygdala, which is part of the limbic system, is, part, is the part of your brain that processes emotions and that is kind of your central spot for fear, okay? And then you have your prefrontal cortex. That is our cognitive mind, our thinking mind. That is our planning, 
our problem solving, our reasoning. So what we think about with our thinking, that's our prefrontal cortex. So there's a, a very useful uh, representation that we can actually use with our fist. So this is our brain, right? So our wrist going here is our brain stem. Our thumb coming through, this is our amygdala and our limbic system, okay? And then over top of it is our prefrontal cortex. And so it goes in this order here, all right? So when they're all working together, everything is good. But the thing to understand is that the lower segments of the brain work faster than the prefrontal cortex does. So actually, it, like, the signals get there kind of quicker and process things quicker than the prefrontal cortex. And so the part that's associated with survival and the part that's associated with emotions and with fear actually is triggered faster than our ability to think. And that's why many times we've had these situations where we're under stress or a very fearful response and it feels like, like you know, we, something just happens and we don't have that control of our thinking brain. So what ends up happening is that the more the amygdala gets triggered and the more fear that there is, the more stress, the more emotional pieces, it actually begins to decouple the prefrontal cortex. You decrease the connection between the prefrontal cortex and the amygdala. And the prefrontal cortex is our ability to reason with the stress. So it decouples, 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 and then eventually what we get is we get our lid flipped. So the expression of flipping our lid, our lid literally gets flipped. And at that point, our prefrontal cortex is no longer integrated with our amygdala. And so the fear response and survival is on overdrive. And it's very hard to think through things. So I'm sure that we've all been in situations where we've even been like, I know that this is wrong, or I know that like, this isn't whatever, but I can't change, like I'm still so scared. Like things are even though like I like and I just can't like reason through things and that's why once they become decoupled, it is very difficult to use your mental ability, your cognitive ability to be able to cut to calm yourself down. Right. So understanding that though, the trick becomes to actually use techniques to work with our amygdala. How do we calm down the fear response without necessarily needing to like think through them using our our mind, our, our brain, I mean, um, cognitively. So the things that help enormously with that are things like breath and posture and senses. So our amygdala understands things by associations. Mm -hmm. And so with breathing, like slowing it down, doing that, you're going to send a message and the amygdala is gonna be like, oh, breathing more calmly, nothing to be scared about. And then it starts to calm down a little bit. As the amygdala starts to calm down, your prefrontal cortex can come back on, and now you can start to think through things a little bit more clearly. All right. So skillfully, again, if you, if you want to use this, if you're ever in that situation where the mind is just, you feel very disconnected, the fear is enormous, but you can't quite get um, your thoughts straight, go back to the body, go back to the breath, work with that, it'll start to calm the amygdala, and eventually get the prefrontal cortex back on track for you to be able to then think a little bit more clearly. All right? Okay, so I know that we're kind of, I know I'm kind of leaving on a quick note and, and we're, our time is coming to an end. 
Um, so I am happy to, you know, say for a bit, answer any additional questions. I don't know if we do need to stop. I don't know if we're in. Yeah, we're gonna, what we're going to do is really yeah. wrap it up. Yeah. And then we can uh, either that or if somebody has questions, they can... Okay. They know how to contact yeah, you. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. You so may get a lot of questions by email. That's fine. Yeah, so if anybody does have questions, definitely feel free to contact me. Um, yeah, and, and let me know. So I apologize for leaving on such like a quick note. Like all of a sudden I said that and we're done, but, but I just want to be you know, respectful of everybody. So there's one thing you mentioned that yeah. uh, uh, I think maybe we glanced over is the, the transformative power of appreciation and gratitude. Yes. Yeah. So uh, nobody really asked about that. But uh, first of yes. all, uh, we will practice it right now. And thank you. Uh, yes, of course. Have, thank you. We are full of gratitude <laughs> yes. for you, uh, for your sharing. But, uh, but I think uh, you, you talked about accessing, finding our way back to mm -hmm. a state of a homeostasis yes. or, or, or relaxed state of being or at ease, being at ease. And uh, uh, I think it's very important to bring in gratitude and appreciation uh, including breathing, uh, is something that we can always practice and we need to practice. And if we practice it, it actually, I think, is very helpful to find our way back to uh, a calm state of being, a more expansive state of being. So uh, yeah, thank you for yeah. that. May I say one quick, quick sure. thing just on that note, like just because sure. I feel yeah, like please. I, I need to add to that. Because yeah, that was wonderful. The, the gratitude piece is a, an emotion that has been linked directly with the parasympathetic nervous system. If you are basically finding peace and happiness with what is as it is, then that brings you out of that fight or flight. You can't be under stress and fight or flight if you are at the same time happy with how things are. Right? So being able to shift into gratitude is enormously, enormously powerful. Now, in those difficult times when if you find that you cannot find that gratitude, if you can't find something to be grateful for, in those situations that often is in the lid flipped moments, because again, gratitude is now using your prefrontal cortex. And if we are under those high stress situations, it is hard to get them together. So being able to come back to the body, back to the breath, and then continue to go back to finding the thing that you're grateful for and end with that gratitude, right? Come. Practice until you are able to find the thing that you, you know, to find the pieces that you are grateful for. Because once you can get back into that gratitude, you know that you've settled into a very nice balanced state. So, that's perfect. Wonderful. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. A good note yeah. to finish with. Thank you so much. And uh, I think to be continued. Yes, absolutely. Happy to. <laughs> Thank you. Yes.